In your pew Bibles, the blue books, page 486 and 487, we are in Esther chapter 5. I'm going to actually look at 4 as well, but let's read from chapter 5, Esther 5. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther, that's the first time she's called Queen Esther in the book, standing in the court, she won favor in his sight And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. And then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What's your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I prepared for the king. And then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared, and as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What's your wish? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish And my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart, but when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him. He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. And then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come in with the king to the feast that she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting in the king's gate. And then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows, fifty cubits high, that's seventy-five feet, be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. Well, this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows built. The grass withers and the flowers fade away, but the word of our God stands forever, to which you say together, Hallelujah, and thanks be to God. Our God, we love to sing rich, Christ-centered hymns that deal with the very heart of His coming into the world to bind the strong man, the devil, to conquer sin and death in the grave and to give that to us that we might, who have Jesus as our hope and trust, know that we shall live forever. God, what a glorious benefit. And now we come again to the book of Esther, where your name is not even mentioned, but you are present and working in ways that are, that are so obvious when we look behind the scenes. And our Lord, this is a beautiful book for us to go through We're in a world that doesn't mention God at all except to curse Him, or at least very rarely. And yet, Lord, you're alive, you're at work, and you're doing your perfect will in your time. So, our Lord, minister to us from this portion of your word. We pray in the name of the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, confirming that we desire to be heard as we say together, 
Amen. Amen. Please be seated. And turn again in your pew Bibles to page 486 and following. It's Esther chapter 5. It shouldn't be like this. You start a business. You're conscientious. You run your business as a Christian. You even tithe your income diligently. You're honest. You're industrious. And the business goes utterly belly up. Shouldn't be like that. You raise your children faithfully. Not perfectly. Only God is the perfect parent. But you bring up your children in the child training and admonition of the Lord, claiming His promises every day, hopeful that God's going to make trophies of grace out of each of these children. And one by one, they stray away from the Lord. It shouldn't be like this. You retire. You and your wife have worked hard, and you're looking forward to just some time together. And then severe illness hits, and your plans are dashed. Shouldn't shouldn't be like that. Or you work hard for political candidates. You work hard for a political party that you believe best will represent and further the good that the civil magistrate is to promote. And you pray hard and you pray with others and you do all that's good in a republic, a constitutional republic, to help see good candidates elected. And they lose. And they lose big time. And people that are totally antagonistic to those things prevail in power. Shouldn't, shouldn't be like that. Esther is full of it shouldn't be like that or it shouldn't be like this. And you're going to see some of that today. We uh, have been a few weeks since we've been away from the book of Esther, so let's just give a little review of it. Remember, this is history. Go back in a time machine, and these things really happened. Imagine about 485 years, 483 years before the birth of Christ, to be exact. That's the time period in which this book begins. The Persian Empire, the largest empire ever, at least to that point in history, uh, that extended, again, as you would be looking at the map, for all the way from India all the way up in a great arc ending in, in Ethiopia and Africa, this massive empire with a place called Susa, which would be in modern-day Iran. Susa is the capital. And when Persia conquered Babylon, the preceding kingdom, that kingdom that had brought God's people into captivity, Cyrus, Cyrus was a pagan. Cyrus was not the greatest guy in the world. But God called Cyrus his servant. He called Cyrus his shepherd. And this wicked king, who still wanted to have freedom of religion for his people, lets the Israelites go back and even pays their transportation so they can go back into the land of Israel. And there are events going on there. But not everybody went. Some of the Jews remained in Persia, in this area. Among them, Esther and Mordecai. Mordecai and Esther were cousins. They were from the same family. Mordecai was older than Esther and raised her like a father. Mordecai apparently apparently had a government position from what we learn. He was able to be in the rather sacred places. Um, and the king at this time is popularly known as Xerxes or in the scriptures Ahasuerus. He reigned from 486 to 464 BC. And keep this in mind, this is the most powerful leader of his day. You could say, in a real sense, all authority in the known world was given to this Ahasuerus. Okay, so, so keep that in mind for just the background. Now, the story itself. Ahasuerus has a massive banquet. It takes a half a year the banquet is to solidify his support 
because they are in a battle with the Greeks. The Greeks would become the power that would eventually defeat the Persians, uh, but not at that point. And Ahasuerus has a half a year of banqueting and feasting so that the support that he has against the Greeks will be kept and raised and furthered and encouraged. And as part of that, he wants his beautiful, drop-dead, gorgeous wife, Vashti, to come to be part of the banquet. And we could surmise that he wanted her to do some things that she really didn't want to do, but for whatever reason, Vashti says no. Bye-bye, Vashti. She's gone because she disobeyed the king, and you don't do that. If the king calls you and you don't come, or he doesn't call you and you do come, you're dead. So the king gets the advice, they need to have a beauty pageant in all of Persia. And the most beautiful of the women from that whole empire are gathered together and brought to Susa. And one of the leading ladies is Esther, who is drop-dead gorgeous. And she has her hat thrown into the ring. She is taken to be part of this harem that is, that is wined and dined and fed and... Oh my, given the oil of Olay and given the beautiful fragrant essences and massages and all that for one year to prepare them for the night that they are to be or that she is to be with the king. And depending on how the king responds, and that night with the woman, we'll find out who the next queen is. And behold, Esther wins the beauty pageant. Now what King Ahasuerus does not know is that Esther has disguised her nationality as a Jewess. And, but that's going to come up a little bit later. Very interestingly, about that same time as, as Esther is then promoted to be the queen, although not yet called Queen Esther, but she's the queen, Mordecai discovers a plot. Mordecai discovers a plot to kill the king he tells the queen, his cousin, of what's to happen. The queen promptly tells the king. And there's two less inhabitants of Susa who were hung on gallows because they tried to attempt to take the king's life. That should have meant a promotion for Haman uh, or for Mordecai because the king always promoted people who protected him. That was a, a hallowed thing. But even though the account of what Mordecai did was written in a book, it was put aside. And oddly enough, it shouldn't be this way, but this is the way it is, Haman is appointed to be second in command to King Ahasuerus. And as you're going to find out, Haman is not a good guy. Haman is an Agagite. He is from the tribe of people that for hundreds of years before had waged war against the Israelites. They were anti-Semitic, if we could put it like that. And Agag carries, or, or rather, uh, Haman carries that through, especially when, as he's promoted, and he is brought through the city with all of his honors, he sees this guy who doesn't bow down to him, and he's a Jew. His name is name is. Mordecai. Haman decides then that the Jews need to be destroyed. A little bit of overreaction, I think, but that's the way Haman is. You'll find out more about him today. And so he tells the king uh, that there is this people that wants to subvert his government. There is this people of strange customs. And it would be to the king's advantage if all of these Jews would be exterminated. And in fact, in order to grease the skids a bit, um, Haman decides that he's going to make half of the annual tax revenue that would come to the king available to him if only the Jews would be killed, all of them. Remember, the king does not realize that his wife is a Jew. The king uses his signet ring to send out the law of Medes and the Persians 11 months from that date. Every single Jew in the Persian Empire is to be killed, and there's tremendous consternation in Susa, not least from Mordecai, 
who realizes that uh, Esther is the ace in the hole for them. Now that brings us, if you look at chapter 4 for a minute, this is how, this is how Mordecai deals with Esther. Uh, they tell Mordecai what Esther said. Here's what Esther said. She says, I'm really kind of helpless. Uh, it's been 30 days and the king hasn't even called me. Apparently his affection for her may have cooled a little bit. She doesn't know why, but for 30 days she hasn't been called in. And so they tell Mordecai what Esther said. This is chapter 4 and verse 12. But Mordecai doesn't give in easily. Then Mordecai told him to reply to Esther, Don't think to yourself, but in the king's palace you'll escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, studying itself, even though there's not references, or at least very many of them here, to the religious commitments of these Israelites that were in Persia. He knew God had promises to preserve his people. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, that's the capital, and hold a fast on my behalf, and don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do, and then I will go to the king, though it's against the law, because you had not been called. And if I perish... I perish. Mordecai then went away. And this is very interesting. He did everything as Esther had ordered him. One thing you're going to see here in this passage, in a very interesting way, God is working so that it's not Ahasuerus in control. It's under God, it's Esther, but we don't want to get too far ahead. Okay. Here's your word for today. The uh, in the iconic movie, not a well, not a not a healthy movie to watch, but still iconic. The Graduate. Um, Mr. McGuire, the professor, takes the graduate Dustin Hoffman. Ben takes him aside, and says, "I have one word for you, and it's the key to success. The word is plastic." And there's a lot of more meaning than that than you think in that movie. But anyway, plastic. Okay. I look like Mr. McGuire when I do. There's one word for you in this message. Timing. Timing. I'll frequently say when people say, well, Pastor, I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. The Lord hasn't answered. And I'll say, well, that's because God's timing is different than yours and his is always right. Okay? So this is all... All about timing in this section. In the section that is about, it shouldn't be like that. Okay. Okay. Let's let's uh, look now at Esther chapter five. This is Esther's defining moment, and and and, and I don't want to make too much of this, but it's interesting that it says on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes, and there's no coincidences. There's no. But there's no incidences, but only coincidences. Three days, why? Three days in a number of cases, especially with Abraham a couple of times, also with Jacob, with, certainly with Jonah. Three days was a significant time. It reflected, you can think of another three days in the New Testament, a time of testing, a time of trial, in which the one who's tried emerges victorious and the book of Hosea, chapter 6 and verse 2, after two days, he will revive us on the third day. He will restore us that we may live in his presence. And I think that's part of the idea here. Time of trial for Esther. Remember, her life's on the line. She's not been called to be with the king. She hasn't been called even through that three-day period. And if she goes to the king uninvited, she's toast. All right. So, but anyway, three days, time of testing, and they come through it. Now, notice the tension of chapter 5 and verse 1. Esther put on her royal robes. 
and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. So you can imagine if Esther were to come in that entranceway in the door, and she is all dolled up. Uh, when you read that she has put on her royal robe, she is dressed to the nines for this thing. And I want you to imagine a, a video camera that, that's watching all of this. She comes in, the king is here, and what we know from pictures that were done at, the back, at that time, in the back of the king, that this, this would be the bodyguard or this would be the bouncer, was a very strong man with a machete. And this was a way of protecting the king. Remember, there had already been an assassination attempt on him. You go ahead and you come into the king unannounced and you lose your head, okay? So imagine the tension when Esther is there at the door. They've prayed, they've fasted, they wait, and she does not know what is going to happen to her in that moment, okay? Now, that's so often your Christian life. An important decision that you must make if you're going to have a good conscience before God. And you ask people to pray, you ask people to fast, you do the same. Uh, but the consequences of what you do can be very, very severe. Fill in the blanks. And there's that tense times, a little bit like the first time you jump off a diving board that's 20 feet above the pool. It's a scary thing. It's a defining moment. But you make that decision as Esther does. She stands there and she waits. And your life will be different from that point on. And it is very dramatically so for Esther. So there she is at the door. She does not know what is going to happen. Whew, what relief. Verse 2. When the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, and you wonder what's going to come next, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. If you didn't do that, then the person behind you would do his work. He held out the golden scepter that was in his hand, and Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, which is a way of saying, I want to be submissive to your reign. Okay, It's a little bit like kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Wow. What a, what, a, what a relief that is. And even the way the text is written, it gives you that sense of when you come there. And the king said to her, verse 3, What is it, Queen Esther? What's your request? It shall be given to you even to the half of my kingdom. There's a New Testament account in which a leader promises half of his kingdom, up to half of his kingdom, to someone for something. But you can read about that for yourself in the Gospels. Up to half of my kingdom. This is the grand opportunity. And see, we're New Yorkers. Esther's going to go and say, King, thank you for that. Now, I've got to tell you what's on my mind. You said, whatever is my request, here it is. My people are going to be wiped out. She has to give away the fact that she's a Jewess and take the cat out of the bag. We're New Yorkers. That's what we would do. Yes, just go in, face it, and do it. Esther doesn't do that. Esther says, if it please the king, let the king... It shouldn't be like this, folks. It shouldn't have been Haman that got the honor. It should have been Mordecai. Let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I prepared for the king. And then the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What's your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what's your request? Even so, the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. We'll get to what her 
responses in just a moment. Let's think for just a little bit. Esther, why did, why did, because you asked this question, why did Esther respond this way at this time? Why didn't she just do the New York thing and say, I'm laying all my cards on the table, you asked, and I want my people delivered? Well, let's think a little bit first about the positive in Esther. Number one, she did finally live up to her position as, we'll call it, a covenant person. She was part of Israel. She was part of those who, at least outwardly, the people of God would do. She, she stands up as you and I need to do. Remember the series on spiritual warfare? Scriptures never tell us to advance. They simply say to stand. And this is a beautiful example of it. Esther stands, and it is her defining moment. I remember years ago I read a, a thing, boy, it probed me. It said, if it were a crime to be a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Ooh. Uh, I don't think to that point there would have been for Esther, given the way she'd lived. But now she stands with God's people. That, that's, a, that's a big plus, and that's very important. Esther now is in a position to see the people of God saved. Praise the Lord for that. The king held out the scepter, and she can do that. But here's the big thing. In this subtle shift, Esther is really now in control. It's from this point on that she's called several times in the book of Esther, Queen Esther. Right? So just by that defining moment of standing, things really begin to change. Okay, now, now watch, the way, watch the way Esther uses her authority. The king, the king says to her, um, once again, uh, tell me what you want, up to half my kingdom. And she answers and says, my wish and my request is, and, and even the way this is done, it's almost like Esther was going to let the cat out of the bag, but she doesn't. If I have found favor, a recipient of God's kindness through Ahasuerus, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king. Ah, wait a minute. This is not Esther who's making her petition, but if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request. Let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. This brings us to the second point of the message. You want a profound sermon point? Duh. This is a real duh statement. The king, the woman tells the king, I want you to come to a feast. Now, notice though how the tables are turning. In verse 5, she is, she is, she says, the king says, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. They, they are doing exactly what Esther asked them to do. And why is that significant? Remember chapter 1? When Vashti did not come to the king, the king spastically says, send out an order throughout the whole Persian Empire. Every woman is to submit to her own husband, do what he says. This is just the opposite. <laughs> she, she, in fact, the word that's very interesting, bring Haman quickly so that we might do the word of Esther, is literally what he says. And so you see that, that Esther, the tables are beginning to turn. Esther is in control. But you see how God can begin to change the hearts of leaders. It may be very subtle, the change is subtle here, but it's very real after Esther's defining moment. And then in the last part of verse 5 in chapter 6, the king and Haman come to the feast that Esther prepared. Of course, they have their wine again, and they enjoy this very, very much. 
And now you say, well, th- this has got to be the time because the king says, ask what you want. Just, just ask whatever you want up to half my kingdom and it shall be fulfilled. And again, here's the duh. If I, if I have found favor in the sight of the king and if it pleased the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman, shouldn't be that way, shouldn't have been Haman who got that position, but Mordecai, come to the feast that I will prepare for them and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. You say to yourself, now, now is the time Look at what the king says. Look at the urgency of the issue. Why does she respond this way? Esther is a very wise woman. You can call her crafty. You can call her cunning. You can call her strategic. But Esther is very thoughtful in what she does. She's hardly spastic like Ahasuerus and Haman are. Why is she so wise? Number one... You go ahead and you do the New York thing and you say, my people have got to be freed. You are asking the king to reverse an edict that was legally irreversible. You're essentially putting him in a position where you're asking him to do the impossible. And that law had been enacted by the most powerful man in the world. That's an awful lot to lay on him at that point. But there's more. Ahasuerus had been promised by Haman, if you go ahead and sack the Jews, basically the idea is we'll take their goods and I'll provide for you the equivalent of one half of your tax revenue for a whole year. And brothers and sisters, in politics, money talks. Loudly. That's another reason why, and and Esther is aware of what that would do. There's even more. The king would lose face. He used his signet ring. That is as if the king himself was saying that edict. The king himself would lose face if he just went ahead and reversed that edict. And finally, she'd have to reveal to the king at that point, she was a Jew. And that would have at least provoked a backlash from Haman, if not from the king. So so those are just some of the reasons to respond to the duh. Esther is deferential. She's meek. She's humble. She's thoughtful. And yes, she's cunning. This, folks, is a game of chess. And rather than make the move that she could have done at that point, she maneuvers things so that she is going to have Ahasuerus not in a stalemate, but in a checkmate. Because you look at this language again, and the king promises her that... Whatever she wants, she'll get. And she says, if, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and she did, and if it pleased the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, then come to the feast tomorrow. And then I will do as the king said. Checkmate. Right? So, so, and there's so many lessons about this, brothers and sisters. The frontal, the, 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 the in, in anything you read about warfare, this is true. The direct approach is very rarely the way you win a battle. Carefulness, tact, thoughtfulness, meekness, gentleness, a gentle tongue breaks the bone. The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be apt to teach, patient, in meekness, instructing those who oppose themselves, if God peradventure should give them repentance to the acknowledgement of the truth. The wrath of man does not work the righteousness of God. And you see all of this in this woman who finally, in her defining moment, 
is seeking to be faithful to follow her Lord. It's a beautiful, beautiful example of, of what grace is meant to do. Okay, now, verses 9 through 12. You want a picture of pride? It's here. And pride goes before... Okay. We come to Haman. The more you know Haman... What's that song? The more you know him, the more you love him. The more you know Haman, the more you hate him. This guy is really, really bad news. And remember, he's essentially the vice president to Ahasuerus in Persia. Now notice, and and I've got to think that that Haman probably uh, had bipolar (laughs) because of these these highs and lows in verse 9. So Haman goes out, and he's joyful and glad of heart. Yes, I got to be with the king. We got to drink wine. The queen wanted me to be with him and nobody else. And guess what? There's another feast tomorrow and nobody else is invited. I'm the only one invited. Wow, this is wonderful. He is really riding on cloud nine. But he sees Mordecai in the king's gate. And Mordecai, remember, Mordecai's a Jew and he knew that Haman was an Agagite, and the Agagites hated the Jews, and so at least for that reason he doesn't rise or tremble before him. And here's, here is the manic, here's the, here's the depressive stage here. He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Why is that? Well, if we're doing biblical counseling, we'd say this. Haman has an idol, The idol is honor. He wants it, he wants more of it, and he never gets enough of it. And because that's his idol, when someone doesn't bow down to him and give him honor, he is crushed, he is angry. An attack on his idol. And we are exactly the same way. The idol of self. And you get a criticism, and you'll get angry the idol of money, and someone illicitly takes it away. And there is a justice, but there's often a very incendiary justice. So be careful. There's a Haman in all of us in this text. So Haman, though, is this bipolar problem, if you will. And and there's even more now that makes you dislike Haman. The Holy Spirit has his ways. You know, they, they say when you watch a movie... What's your standard for movies? You should come away from whatever you watch with the view of that subject that God has. If the movie is about adultery and you come away being titillated by adultery, that's not what God wants. Now, the Holy Spirit has his way of in the scriptures saying, you really need to dislike this guy in here. How would you like to have this guy as your friend? Okay, so nevertheless, Haman restrained himself. Here is anger management at work. And he went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Now notice the language. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons. This is strange. Don't you think Zeresh, who delivered those children, would know how many sons he's got? But this fellow is so soaked in himself, he's even got to remind his wife how many sons they have. All the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. And then Haman said, I mean, this is, going, this is what's icing on the cake. Then even Queen Esther let no one but me Come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. How'd you like to have this guy as your friend? I pity his wife, incidentally. Why don't I get an invitation to come? But but this this is Haman, self-absorbed Haman. And notice how the idol comes up, though. Despite all of these things, because remember, if your idol's dashed, doesn't make how make any difference how many good things come. You're concerned about your idol. 
Yet all this, verse 13, is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai, now the language, the Jew, sitting at the king's palace. Now notice, notice how minor this is. This fellow's got the adulation of everyone. He's got every honor you could ever imagine, and he recounts them. But you talk about making a mountain out of a molehill. This one guy who doesn't bow down to him just aggravates him because his idol has been attacked. So, notice what happens in verse 14. I don't like the term, but it communicates what's done. You talk about sucking up sycophants, toadies, brown nosers. They know that you go ahead, and let's face it, if, if Mordecai, not bowing down to this guy, inflames him this much, what if they say something like, Haman, don't you think you're just a little bit too full of yourself? Uh-uh, no way. Don't ever come near a volcano that is erupting. And so these toadies, these sycophants, they say in verse 14, Zeresh leads the way, and all the friends chime in. Let a gallows 75 feet high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon. Now, the reason for this is obviously you're not going to miss it. It's a little bit like seeing the Empire State Building when you're down in Manhattan. You can't miss this thing because it's so high. Build that 75-foot-high gallows, and in the morning, not tonight, timing, folks, timing, in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. And then go joyfully with the king to the feast. Oh, and Haman likes this. Yeah, this is, this is Haman. He likes this. And so he goes ahead and has the gallows made. It probably took all night to make the thing anyway. It shouldn't be like this, folks. It shouldn't be like this because Mordecai, the king wouldn't be alive if it weren't for Mordecai. And if everything had been done properly a few years before, Mordecai would have been second in command. But timing, timing, timing. As far as Haman goes, brothers and sisters, hatred and anger tempt us to do really stupid things. You don't believe me? A fellow is upset in Texas that someone said, don't be shooting off your gun at night because our children are trying to sleep. And how many people did he kill? And you hear stories like this over and over again, how anger and hatred tempt us to do stupid things. But God... Never, those probably the two most important words in the Bible. But God, God gives space to some of the most odious people to let their odiousness be shown in particular ways before he works. Timing, timing, timing. I want to give you a window on dealing with three kingdoms. Number one, the kingdom of this world. It's not unusual that things go from bad to worse. It's not unusual that you have bad leaders doing bad things, and those bad things aren't stopped quickly, and they get worse. But the movers and the shakers are not really in control. It's interesting that the most important lesson from the book of Esther is made important because the name of the subject of that lesson is not mentioned. Just like our world. God's not in the thoughts of people. He's not in the words of people unless they're cursing him. In most cases, God is just not at all on their radar screen. And yet God is very much at work. 
And that's what you see in the book of Esther, particularly at this point, God is at work. And what's further? And I want you to chew on this. Notice that in a very subtle way, in this chess match, Esther, in God, Esther is the one who's in control. And I don't want to overstate this, but it's nevertheless true that Christ's bride in the world, his church, and individuals like you who are part of it, have far more power than you ever realize. God has a purpose in the world. All the world's plans and purposes and wickedness and whatever, good things, whatever would be there. That scaffolding for the work in which God is going to save his people and bring light and truth and grace into a world that needs that more than anything else. Which means that, if you put it like this, in Christ, God's people are the ones who have the steering wheel. Not ultimately, but in Christ, as they serve him, as Esther's doing, they have that control. Your obedience brings far more blessing than you can ever imagine. I'm utterly fascinated by the book of Philemon in the Old Testament. I'm fascinated, number one, that it's there. It's very short. It's about Paul who's in prison, and, and this slave comes to him for whatever reason. The slave is a slave of Paul's good friend, who is Philemon. Onesimus comes to faith in Christ, even though Paul's in prison. The gospel isn't bound. Onesimus comes to faith in Christ, and Paul sends him back to get whatever consequences must come. But very much like Esther, as you read Philemon, it's a masterpiece of of meekness and gentleness and humility and kindness and courtesy. He says, oh, he says, I'm sending your slave back to you. But something's different now. He's a brother. He's far more than a slave. He is your brother in Christ. He doesn't tell Onesimus. He doesn't tell Philemon that he needs to free Onesimus. He doesn't say, you need to realize we are about the work of social transformation, and you free him immediately. He lives out of the gospel. He says, this man is your brother. How do you treat your brother? And we've learned from other sources, and and some of this is speculation, but It sounds like it's pretty close to the truth. Number one, Onesimus was freed. Number two, he became a bishop, a leader of the Christian church, even though Philemon never was. Philemon is in submission in the Lord to that one who was his slave who is now his brother. That's the way the gospel works, folks, in the world. It's not the wrath of man that works the righteousness of God. Yes, sometimes you've got to be direct. Always you've got to be courteous and gracious. God does not need our anger to do his work. Okay, it's a window in the world. That, that's, that's one window here. Second window is this. It's a window on the human heart, and you learn that in Haman. There's a reason why this guy is so odious. It's a call to us to put to death our inner Haman because we see this in each of us. Watch out, folks, for those idols of comfort, the idol of wealth, the idol of security, the idol of honor, the idol of whatever it would be. And you know it's an idol. If it gets challenged and you get angry, put to death the inner Haman. But the third one is this. And you've got to be struck with the contrast, window in the world, window on the human heart. But it's a window on Christ's kingdom. Remember one of the themes in Esther, counterfeits, counterfeits. Old Testament, as the book of Revelation at the end of the Old Testament, deals with counterfeits to the kingdom of God. Esther has counterfeits to the temple, counterfeits to a kingdom, counterfeits to leadership, all kinds of counterfeits. Notice Ahasuerus' way of governing. You're not bidden to come to me and you're dead. 
Notice the wonderful kingdom of Jesus Christ. He always bids you to come to him. And he always, as it were, has the golden scepter out. You know why? Because he took the golden scepter of this thing called the cross. And that bouncer in back of King Ahasuerus takes on the form of the devil and executes Jesus on the cross so that your execution might be taken away. It's totally different. See how the Old Testament over and over again shows us in one way or the other the kingdoms of this world are totally unlike the kingdom of Christ. And he bids you to come. Do you, folks? That's the Christian life. It's that simple and that profound. In my sin, I come to Jesus. In my self-righteousness, I come to Jesus. In my weakness, I come to Jesus. In my supposed strength, I come to Jesus. And he always has the golden scepter out. Do you come to him? So those are windows and three things. Let's go back to Esther for just a moment as we wrap things up for today. It really shouldn't be like this. In the middle of the night, you can hear the pounding of the hammers and the nails to build a 75-foot gallows. Joe Matone can tell you about how long that would take with the tools that we have. I imagine it took most of the night. The gallows is being built. And the word goes out that this Jew, Mordecai, is going to be hung on it first thing in the morning. But God's at work. Because when you begin chapter 6 and verse 1, the Holy Spirit, through the writer of Esther, says, on that night, apparently this was a rare thing for him, but on that night, the king could not sleep. I think of Scrooge in A Christmas Carol where he couldn't sleep one night and he said, it may be an undigested bit of beef. Well, that could be what it is. It could be that the marinara sauce had a little bit too much spice in it or too acidic, who knows? Or it could be he just had too much wine and he couldn't sleep. But ultimately, the reason he couldn't sleep is because of God. God at work even when we sleep. And it's very interesting, the king doesn't call for Pepsid Complete to help him out, even if they had something equivalent to it. Good psychology. If I need to sleep, get a good, boring book. And so he calls for a book to be read. And there's lots of these journals that are to be read. But in God's providence, one particular book is picked, and it begins to be read to Ahasuerus, who, because of God, could not sleep. And everything will change really fast. It shouldn't be like this. It won't be like this after you hear what happens next week. Let's pray. Our Lord, we, we love being reminded of, of Judy Rogers' song, God never changes. He remains the same. He has a plan to glorify his name. And if we should stand, as Esther did, or even if we fall, God is working out his purpose in it all. The standing of Esther, the falling of Haman, you're working out your purposes. And God, remind us from this book, from this chapter, from this series, that even though God is willfully suppressed in our culture, God is still alive, and he's at work, and he will accomplish all of his holy will for the sake of that great king who outstrips Ahasuerus and all others, King Jesus. Amen. Amen.